Thank you, Dinan and Sam. Thank you. So good to worship, isn't it? Alice is going to come and speak to us now. So we're in this series on James, and uh, this is, I think, our penultimate one. Uh, So if you want to listen back on previous uh, talks, they're always on our website or iTunes, or now you can get them all over the place, Facebook, YouTube. uh, And we're digging into some of the richness of of James. So I'm going to pray and pass over to Alice. Holy Spirit, we thank you that you're here. Thank you that you, you... you build connection between us and uh, us and you, and uh, we pray you continue to do that now as Alice speaks to us from from James. Feed us, make these words personal to us. Pray that as she speaks, there will be particular things that maybe resonate with with each one of us here. May it be like a good a good meal that feeds us and steers us in in how we live our life. Amen. Hi everyone, it's lovely to be able to speak to you today. Wasn't that beautiful? Dylan and Sam have just an incredible anointing. I felt like I I connected and felt with God again through that amazing gift. We're looking through the book of James, which is great, as Chris has just said. So I'm going to dive straight in. If you want to catch up or have an introduction or look at the earlier chapters, do go back to our past live streams. I've been given an absolutely fantastic passage I'm going to speak on. But first, <laughs> we're, we're into being, you know, vulnerable and open. And so I'm going to share something that I just find so embarrassing. But, you know, we're all family, aren't we? Which is the whole Harry and Meghan thing blew up over what sort of has been building up for a while and then kind of became really big media this year, uh, this week, um, because of their interview with Oprah Winfrey and then Piers Morgan's response. And so and then the royal family's response. But what it exposed in me was my old human condition, which is what I'm kind of bringing into the light now, which is I actually couldn't read any of it, not because I'm super spiritual, because I don't want to waste time on things or this or that, but because I just... I'm jealous. I'm envious. I'm, I find it really triggering when I read about someone else being really popular and people being interested in their lives. That's just so embarrassing, but that's the reality. And so I haven't really read any of it, but not because I'm whole. It's because I'm broken and not because I'm mature, because I'm immature and I need restoration. And it's exactly the same with social media. So I'm, I have Instagram and Facebook, but long journey with both. Love to talk people to people individually about my journeys. But I essentially see them as, as a, you kind of have to have them now. They're just part of life. They're ubiquitous. And they're useful very occasionally for communications. For me, for some people, it's part of a massive part of their job, which is fine. But for me, it's kind of very non-essential communications every so often. And literally, if I do ever post, which is quite rare, I post really rarely. I can't look at any other people at all because I'm triggered. The envy in me that I'm talking about is triggered. Or Facebook, so I don't look at anyone else's feeds. I don't look at anything apart from to reply to anything if someone's personally messaging me. So that's just a bit about my human condition, my need for healing and wholeness and reconnection and to know I'm loved and significant. And that I feel sometimes like I'm just at the beginning of that journey. And the reason I literally am obsessed by the Bible, particularly the Hebrew Bible, is because I think that's what it is. 
It's a mirror to the human condition. It shows us what we're really like beyond all the veneer of super spirituality or performance or this or that. It shows us our deep need to just know we're loved and know God's good and to be reconnected with him and healed by him. And I don't know if you remember, there was um, a moment in one of our live streams, which actually worked out quite well because Chris ended up getting this better camera but where everything went wrong and we actually had to use a mirror, speak into a mirror because of the sound or something. And it was in the James series and there's a brilliant image in James, but it's a biblical image that the Bible is a mirror. In fact, it's a key to reading the Hebrew Bible. So we look at these, the naivety of Eve. Why on earth? She's godlike. Why would she believe the the adversary, the lies of the accuser, that if she went his way, she would be more godlike? Of course she wouldn't. That's stupid. Or Abraham, who lies and cheats and deceives to self-protect. So his wife gets, suffers abuse while he just gets away with it. Stupid man, ignorant man. Or David, he worships one minute and then the next he's kind of committing adultery and coveting and envying and killing. My gosh, who's going to be like David? And Solomon, he's like the new Adam. He says, yes, he wants God's wisdom, not his own. And then he gets the wisdom, gets the blessing, and then turns away from God. I mean, these stupid, ignorant people all the way through the Hebrew Bible. And you come away from it going, oh, my gosh, that's me. I'm naive. I believe the lies of the enemy. I'll be more godlike if I do that. I'm like Abraham, who does all sorts of things that harm other people out of self-protection. I'm like David, worshipping one minute and then going into the flesh in the next. I'm like Solomon, who start out well, and then I get blessed and I go off. I need a, I need a Mashiach, a Messiah, an anointed one. I need a true human, a new Adam, a new Abraham, a new David, a new Solomon. One who can fully, incarnationally inhabit union with God. Never deviate from the right to the left of that place of pure intimacy. And come out the other side. That's who I need. And that's what the Hebrew Bible points us to. And then we have people like James, who grew up half-brother of Jesus, didn't believe in him, thought he was a political figure, and then suddenly has a moment after his resurrection, a very tender moment, where Paul says that Jesus actually revealed himself to James. Actually, I am that anointed one that you're all craving, needing, desiring. And he gives his life to following Jesus after Jesus' ascension, he becomes a leader and a pillar in the church. But that that kind of that that gritty Hebrew roots, those Jewish roots are very much in him as a Messianic believer. He's writing to the Jewish diaspora who believe in Yeshua, in Jesus, in this letter. It's a very early days, not many Gentile believers at all. And and he's he is he is tough on the human condition. That's why I love it. He doesn't pull any punches, doesn't pat us on the head, doesn't self-indulge. Oh, you're all right, really. Oh, you're a victim. It's just like, you've got a problem. And God, Yahweh, has provided a solution in coming himself and fulfilling the true human ideal. So we're going to read that with that in mind and then unpack that a bit. So the passage we've got to today, it's really about economics. It's about financial systems. Fascinating. We have new morphs of them every couple of two or three centuries or so but essentially it's the same issue of the human condition wanting to have power outside god and using that power in that in that use of power exploiting others so james 4 verse 13 and then moving on into james 5 now listen you who say today or tomorrow we'll go to this city or that city spend a year there carry on business and make money. Why? You don't even know what happens tomorrow. What is your life? 
You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, if it's Yahweh's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay your workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned an innocent uh, and murdered the innocent one who is not opposing you. So it's a rich tradition of the Hebrew prophets. It was a self-critical system once it's actually produced is the roots behind our freedom of press now in the West, which is within the system, the prophets challenged the kings. That was utterly unprecedented in the ancient world. Everyone worshipped the kings, because if you didn't, you got killed. But there's this fascinating tradition in the Hebrew Bible where you had prophets who actually spoke about, yes, sometimes the injustices of the dominant nations and the empires, but mainly it was an internal dialogue about the injustices being committed within the, the, the system. And this actually culminates Jesus himself was probably one of the reasons he was crucified, was that he he challenged the corruption within the religious elite at the time of the temple system in the, in the first century AD. So this is James speaking into that tradition. He's talking to the rich people. Now, what's complex for us post-Christendom is actually most of us who read this are now globally the rich people. It's not them out there anymore. It's not even the, those rich people in, in Britain anymore. It's, it's the West on the whole, not totally, but on the whole, we, we are those people. And so what I love about this mirror, so we look at the first bit, people who float around saying, well, go here and go there and make money and do business. He's a bit harsh on them. Surely that's what life's about, swanning around, going to different countries, being a digital nomad, setting up a business, doing what we like. You know, that's been the problem with COVID is we can't do that anymore. Oh, well, we can still do it at home. You know, we still can set up our global businesses and connections because of technology now. There's nothing wrong with that. And he's really tough on that attitude, that sort of arrogant smugness, I can do what I like attitude. He kind of calls it evil, it's boasting, there's arrogant schemes. You're like, chill out, James, give us a life. It's really fun. And then you get to the next passage and you realise it's saying, the because the other side of the coin, the people who can swan around and can afford to do that and be digital nomads and do all this stuff, is probably on the backs of other people crying out to God because they're not being paid properly. Probably. The provenance is sketchy. We were talking to someone about even the garment industry the other day, and they said, it's not great in China, but in the Wild West, in India, it's the Wild West. There are probably children making things that we wear. I wouldn't have that under my roof, but I'm having it under the global roof. So the kind of people that can swan around saying we'll do what we like are actually actually the rich people that he warns 
are oppressing the poor and their cries are being held out. Their cries are coming out. And I have a a great deal of sympathy towards this momentum against injustice because it's it's wrong. I mean, you can't get around it. It's it's just wrong that, that people have a very easy life if their ease of life is on the exploitation of anyone else who's vulnerable. We know that's wrong. It's deeply challenging, isn't it? But how do we respond to that? I haven't actually been given the next passage. <laughs> there's a hint at the end of this one. There's there's a lot more, he says, uh, in the middle bit of James. So I'm not going to go there. But what I'm going to do is give examples of people who, who deal with these gross injustices according to their own wisdom and understanding. In a sense, they take from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and say, we're going to redefine good and evil in our own eyes. That's wrong. And this is how we're going to deal with it. Not nothing to do with God, humans, how we're going to deal with it, these gross injustices and inequalities, which have been, which have been the ferment of political revolutions from Cain killing Abel. You know, it's, it's just from the beginning of time, this, this power struggle. And so I'm going to tell a story, actually, of two different men in history who saw gross inequalities and injustices one of them decided to solve it in his own understanding, and one of them decided to go to God. So I'm going to start with the first one. The reason I'm going back a bit in history, I hope you can translate this culturally, is because sometimes we need to see a couple of hundred years to see a seed of ideology and the kind of fruit it bears. And when we're at the green shoot stage of something, it's quite hard to see what's going to be the outcome. So we're going to look at seed and fruit from a couple of different approaches to dealing with these gross injustices and inequalities, which I, by the way, have a great deal of sympathy for. So um, the backstory behind the person I'm going to talk about now is, is what was going on in the French Revolution. This is like late 1700s. It was horrendous how the peasants were treated. I didn't actually realise this. I've learned a lot more about this this year. Just brutal, cruel taxations, famines. Even, I think, there was a salt tax. Even, I think, children were working and being taxed. I mean, it's just a beggar's belief how much that generation of, of the majority of the French population put up with before the straw broke the camel's back. And they just said, enough is enough. Um, we, we, we cannot live under this. In fact, we prefer to risk death than keep living in this hell. It takes a lot for humans to go into violent revolution because they're naturally self-protecting. So they'll self-protect and self-protect and self-protect. And then there's a moment when they're like, I don't care if I even die in the name of, I just, we just cannot live with this anymore. So there was this incredible, it was a load, load of movements. A lot of it actually ironically came out of the, the, the humanism from the Protestant revolution. So the, the Protestantism about a century or two centuries before, you can trace it all back a long way, but it explodes this, this so-called enlightenment moment where actually it's, let's throw off the old systems of monarchical and, arist- and the, the oppression of the aristocracy. Let's rise up liberty, fraternity and equality. And those people who've been particularly pernicious, let's, let's behead them. We'll behead them with Madame Guillotine, which was seen as the most ethical form of execution at the time because it was one chop and you're off. And note, bizarrely, some of the perpetrators, leaders of this movement themselves actually were beheaded as well. And it was just this, this massive shift in thinking in Europe in the late 1700s. And the father of the, the, the man I'm going to talk about was influenced by this movement, this sort of humanist movement that was going across 
Europe to kind of throw off the the oppression of these these incredibly overindulged self-indulgent leaders you can't get around it it was just it's just horrendous some of the stories that came out about how people were treated anyway so this man is called Karl Marx he was born in 1818 uh, and he lived till he died in 1883 he was German originally but he actually became stateless because of some of his radical writings and lived mainly in exile in Britain he had a wealthy and educated background. He was Jewish of heritage, which I think is significant because there was incredibly horrendous anti-Semitism throughout many centuries in Europe. So that would have been a massive backstory of kind of learning to, to live and deal with that context. And he actually married someone and converted and was baptized into the Lutheran church, a northern, a German kind of Protestant tradition church. And, and then, and then in 1848, so at 30 years old, he writes what is a very kind of famous political piece called the Communist Manifesto. And a couple of decades later, writes something called Das Kapital. And he essentially has this worldview about what he saw in his time, the injustices he saw, which I've been kind of talking more generally about. And it was very specifically this moment in history where there was massive industrialization, massive urbanization, and a lot and a few people getting very, very rich on the backs of, of workers, he called them the proletariat. And he, he said, human societies develop through class conflict. There's a moment where the ruling classes control the means of production, the working classes exchange labor power for wages, and then that produces such tensions that eventually what happens is there's an active working class violent revolution which topples capitalism and brings about the emancipation of the brotherhood. Actively, he in the mid-19th century, forgive me, political theorists, I'm not an expert on Karl Marx or Marxism, but my understanding is in the mid-19th century, he saw there were, there were lots of, it was a 1848 or something like the year of revolutions. It was a real shift to the idea, which we think has gone on forever, but just relatively recently, the nation state. There was a shift to this, and he was like, the end justifies the means. It's violent revolution to emancipate this horrendous treatment of the working classes so that they can become free, the, the brotherhood, um, become free and throw off the, the power brokers that, that essentially make money, make capital out of their labor. So that kind of makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? I mean, you know, he, one of his contributing thinking was seeing what was happening in England during that time. England with one of the leaders of the Industrial Revolution. And, but, but actually if you went and just saw the life of those who were owning factories and those who were working in them, it was, it, there was a gross disparity and it was, it was backbreaking, painful work and often child labor laws took a long time to come in and it, it was very, very challenging. And you can see how this would catch on like wildfire. Someone and a group of people actually, this was all coming out of the enlightenment thinking of loads of different thinkers, people like Engels as well in Central Europe, just all coming together. But it's something about what he said and he caught, he just caught it. He was like, this, the, his actual worldview is like there was, there will be an inevitable rise up of the working classes and they will establish leadership. 
and these other people will be defeated. It particularly caught on in places like Russia, where czarist practices and essentially the surf, the surf system, which was kind of a, basically a form of slavery, was, was still going on even mid late 19th century and a horrendous gross injustices between the small wealthy elite and, and everyone else who was working their backs during famines and so on to reduce their, their to support their lavish lifestyles just a hundred years later from what was going on in France, triggering the French Revolution. So you see these different countries and you get it. I mean, I get it. It's like you cannot stomach it very long if you, if you kind of look back and see it. So anyway, it caught on like wildfire. Someone was finally, there was a movement that was finally going to liberate us from these horrendous injustices that people just seem to be born into. There's no way out. It caught on in, in Russia, in places as far afield as China, Cambodia, nations in Africa, Cuba. It's unbelievably, he kind of did something, he caught something or the movement did, or then then his then followers did. Now, what we don't want to acknowledge, and it's actually quite hard to get the statistics because it's so challenging for us, anyone who identifies in any way as a left-wing progressive, I'm talking more about that because I think I hope that will be more our weakness than falling to the first thing I talked about, which I'll, I'll touch on again, which is colluding with this, the gross inequalities and not caring. But both sides fall off, fall off the horse, if you like. But probably a hundred million people have been killed in the 20th century through direct political persecution of anyone who questioned that status quo and indirect outcomes of economic policies producing mass famines. In, in the former Soviet Union, particularly in China, particularly Cambodia and other countries, tens of millions of people died in the name of an ideology that had a seed that was trying to deal with injustice. It was seeing something that was fundamentally wrong with the world, but they didn't want to deal with it according to God's way of dealing with injustice. They took the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They said, we're going to solve this injustice ourselves. The the end will justify the means. It's one of the least spoken about genocides, if that's a helpful term. I don't know if you can, there are a number of different terms for it of the 20th century. No one wants to know because we all hate injustice. We don't want to know that the fruit of trying to deal with it in our own strength always ends in death, always ends in the oppressor sorry, the oppressed, becoming the oppressor. You see this in the Pharisees, the biggest group of people Jesus is confronting in the Gospels are not those crazy, horrendously violent, persecuting tax collectors who would literally, at threat of violence, rob their poor, impoverished Jewish compatriots, take extra for themselves and give taxes to the Roman oppressors. He didn't challenge them loads. He challenged the people who thought that they could be righteous in their own eyes. It's self-righteousness that is the seed of the Pharisee that we absolutely need to eradicate from the church. It is disempowering, it is pernicious, it's judgmental, it's intolerant, and it is not kingdom. In my heart, that's why I did, I hold up the mirror and go, what's wrong with me? It's not them out there, it's me in here. I need to deal with my own human condition. And there's an amazing solution, which I'm going to tell you about 
but I was really struck by Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who's a, a famous writer. He was a, a Soviet dissident during this time in Russia, and he actually ended up in, in a, uh, a labor camp. He had a faith in the, in the Russian Orthodox Church as a child. He became kind of a, an atheist advocate of this new way to be human that was, that was kind of flourishing in his nation. But actually when he experienced the labor camps that he was put, he was put into as a political prisoner because of some of his writings, he actually reverted back to his Christian faith. And I just think his self-awareness is incredible. He could have been so angry and let's overthrow this horrendous regime that's put me in a labor camp. But he didn't. He allowed the oppression out there that he was suffering to, to be a mirror to what was going on in his heart. And he says very famously, this is in the Gulag Archipelago, uh, that he, in one of his works, if only it were all so simple, if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. It's that simple. Just get rid of the greedy, horrible, nasty people, the stupid, ignorant people. Get rid of all of them. But the line, just this is stunning. This is why people who are artists should just make art. People who are writers should just write. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? It's just that the good and evil isn't out there. It's in me. And that's why I love the Hebrew Bible and I love the New Testament because they tell me that. The Hebrew Bible tells me I read this person after person after person and it says this is what you're like. This is the human condition. It's not out there. It's in me. And what I absolutely love about the promise of the Hebrew Bible is there is an anointed one, a Mashiach, a Messiah, who will come and fully restore the human heart so that we can be good and kind and loving and just and peaceful according to the wisdom of God, defining good and evil in his way, establishing his personal but also socio-economic political kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. That is the good news. The good news isn't me trying to deal with injustices in my own strength. The good news is I surrender, I yield. I bring my own, own the oppression and the oppressor in me into the light. I receive forgiveness from the one, the innocent one. It just touches on this at the end of the passage. He's talking about innocent people who suffer, but I think he's also referencing the innocent one, the one pure, true human who never oppressed anyone, who is totally blameless. He, he took on all the oppression of the human condition in his crucifixion, execution under both the, the religious elite at the time and the political system of Rome. He took it on in his body and it was crucified with him. All evil oppression was dealt with once and for all in his death on the cross and in his overcoming in his red physical material, his historical resurrection from the dead, he declared there is a new way to be human. All these evil systems have been fully dealt with and we can now live that true new humanity. It's always peaceful, it's always gentle, it's always humble and it always works. And so I'm now going to talk about another person that had a vision of how to deal with injustice, but they did it God's way. 
I find this absolutely fascinating. Something I've been thinking about during COVID is how Jesus never spoke to anyone like they're a victim. He always spoke to everyone like they're victorious. Fascinating. He didn't say to anyone, you poor Jewish people, you're under Roman oppression, or gosh, you've been suffering a sickness for a very long time. I'm so sorry about that. He had absolute compassion for people who were hungry and people who needed bodily healing, and he healed them and even raised someone from the dead out of compassion. But he never he's never self-pitying or self-indulgent. He always treats people like they are victorious. Like the Roman oppression is just a system that's passing. But who they are is truly human, and what they need is a saviour. So you think the last thing someone needs to know when they're suffering gross injustice is to know that they have a human condition that needs healing and restoration. But what I find fascinating about the movement of of John Wesley and that season in English history, which was around the time, building up to the time of the French Revolution in Europe, and and what became known as the Methodist movement, was that they he understood that the deepest need a human had was to do exactly what the Bible has always been doing, is face their own human condition. And so he would talk, he would tell people the good news. Jesus has died for your sins, the things you've done wrong. He's fully resurrected, you're fully forgiven. There are these just incredible moving images of of miners actually based in in parts of Bristol, just their faces completely full of coal, just tears streaming down their faces. And he was essentially calling them up to humanity. He wasn't saying, you're a victim, poor you, overthrow those, those horrible people who are oppressing you in the mines. You're a true human. You need to get right with God. Jesus has made a way and you will re- recover your true humanity. Do you know in one generation during that movement, alcoholism went down, domestic violence went down. These people were educated into a literate middle class. And it was probably due to that influence, historians believe that we didn't have a French Revolution. Now, there are a lot of problems in our history, as last year, 2020, is highlighted. I'm not looking at our history with any rose-tinted spectacles at all. But I do know that that man and that movement said the thing people really need to know is that they have a heart condition that needs restoration, that they have a fundamentally flawed, toxic human condition. I do, and I need a saviour. I need a messiah. I need an anointed one who can be a true human in me and through me. At the same time, he was absolutely preaching abolition incredibly before his time, really, in, in, in the chapels here in Bristol as well. He absolutely did both. But he never took away the dignity of that person that actually they just need to know the good news, that Jesus has died for them and released them. That's the true emancipation that they need. Out of that, everything else comes. Out of that, literacy comes. Out of that food and housing and education and all those things that make us human and bring dignity, all of that comes. But the first thing any of us need to know is we have, we, we're human and we have a human condition, but we can be a true human in Christ. So those are way back in history, but I think it's helpful because we can see the fruit over a period of like a hundred years and sometimes seeds, as we know with oaks, take a long time till we see the fruit. There are gross injustices in our world. James is pointing it out again. Firstly, we need to, the challenge is, at what point are we colluding with them? Just because it's not under our watch or, you know, in our house, we have to be very, very careful that what we buy and what we invest in, we're not colluding 
but we de- we can trust God that if we try and do it in our own strength, it it just won't work. It won't work. But if we say, Lord, I want to live a, a life that's just, I want to live a life where every human flourishes, where it's not just a few. I want to contribute to a, a, a kingdom, a kingdom of God, where everyone is under their own vine and fig tree. Everyone has their mini Eden. He will show us the way. His spirit will inspire us into what we need to do in order to contribute to the building of the kingdom. And that's our vision here at Hope. So I'm going to bring it right back in now to to land for us today. How do we know if our spirit is a spirit of God contributing to human flourishing or this spirit of trying to deal with injustice in our own understanding? I'm going to give you some markers for for the spirit that is actually doing it in our own understandings, not trusting in God and won't produce good fruit. If we speak with contempt, if we call other people stupid and ignorant, if we don't humble ourselves and take responsibility for our own lack, if we're judgmental, if we say, if you say that word or that person or that name, I will not speak to you. I'm not going to listen to you. Those are marks of us taking the fruit of the tree, the knowledge of good and evil, and trying to work out how to do justice in our own understanding. As a church, we need to be purified from the yeast of the the seed of the, the Pharisee. We need to be purified from, essentially, it's a victim spirit. And trust, God is good. He's overcome. He's made a way. We believe. And we just get to enter in and participate with his goodness, which means we humble ourselves which means we listen to other people who think differently to us to the point of view where we can see the world from their own eyes. And then we come back and then we present our point of view from our eyes and we have intelligent, nuanced discussions with the aim of of learning from one another. We're going to be a family. We're going to have a broad range of takes on all sorts of things and we love that about hope. But we are not going to be judgmental, intolerant and divisive amongst ourselves. We're going to be a people that can have intelligent, humble, gentle, interested conversations, listening to other people. We're going to have a church marked by empathy and emotional intelligence on this. Knowing that actually there'll be a bit of the image of God in all of us. And by the end of it, we'll have a really full picture of the kingdom of God. He he images himself in humans, but I think he images himself in all of us humanity. Not just bits of us. Not just one or two of us, but all of us present the full image of God. Some a great little couple of stories from history about um, people who followed Jesus and then brought justice in, brought the kingdom of God in, in very practical terms, housing of workers' conditions and so on, which is what the end game is. It's what we're looking for, isn't it, is we're establishing the kingdom. These are lovely stories to end with, and then but then are and some few stories as well from us currently at Hope. So the Quakers, there's nothing like being persecuted as a nonconformist because you get really entrepreneurial. And they weren't allowed to go to universities. They often started businesses. Britain's very subtle in our persecution of people. Just don't go to university. (laughs) Anyway, these Quakers, who, by the way, were epic abolitionists, probably a year before um, the Methodist movement. They they just were were all very late, but they were the first of the late people. But um, 
they weren't allowed to go to university. Alcoholism at the time was a social ill in Victorian Britain. So a brother, a couple of brothers called the Cadbury brothers, they started a tea, coffee and drinking chocolate business, which was really hard going. It was difficult. The cocoa press system wasn't very good. And it, it, it took a while. But anyway, um, one of their sons, when the father died, John Cadbury and his brother started it and then was taken over by the sons Richard and George. And then it started to kind of boom, started to grow. Do you remember what I said about seeds growing? It takes a while. But the seeds started to grow in the second generation. Anyway, though it started to be, as, as I talked about earlier, just squalid, not great conditions for workers in factories in, in rapidly um, industrialising Britain and Europe at the time. And George Cadbury, so their vision to do it anyway was to combat the social ill of alcoholism at the time, the, the fathers. Then the, the sons... Just one of, one of the most beautiful little quotes by George Cadbury in 1878 of his vision. He moved everyone out of the city and set up workers in, in decent housing outside the city. And this to me is a mini Eden. This is a kingdom of God moment. No man ought to be condemned to live in a place where a rose cannot grow. I just love the fact he had that vision. He could have easily capitalized on the booming, you know, cocoa and chocolate industry. But his heart was for the people who were doing a lot of work to help produce that. And he wanted them all to be in a place where roses could grow. And to me, that is the heart of the kingdom. It's the heart of a kingdom business. And then to just celebrate Bristol and the, the Quakers in Bristol as well, um, a family called Fries and Sons, they produced the first chocolate Easter egg, 1873 in Britain, by our a very own Bristolian company in Union Street. Bristol produced the first solid chocolate bar. So there you go. Persecute some people and they bring some happiness in the form of chocolate to the world. So the challenge from this passage from James, all injustices where powerful people abuse their position and exploit other people without regard for their well-being or any consequences will be put right. The challenge is the Lord of Heaven's armies. That's a strong name for it. From a Jewish mindset, that is the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, said, I establish you amongst the nations. That is the God of David, who said, I will protect you and enable you to be a, a glorious kingdom. The God of Heaven's armies is, is on the side of the poor. He's on the side of the oppressed. And we need to be on the right side of history. That is the challenge of this. All injustices where powerful people abuse their position and exploit other people without regard for their well-being or any consequences will be put right. He will intervene and he will personally bring about justice. He has on the cross. He gives people a heck of a lot of time to repent and receive the cross. But there is a moment where he says enough's enough. If you're resisting me, that injustice then will fall. And we see that again and again and again in history. It never survives. Corrupt systems fall inevitably. Either people turn to God or he lets them collapse. That, that, is, that is the challenge. We need to get on the right side of history. The second thing is the gift. Jesus has taken the sin condition of humanity and died with it. So he knows both how to comfort those who are suffering under gross injustices. But he also knows how to change the hearts of those who perpetrate injustice. And that was the beauty of what Jesus did with the tax collectors. He didn't bash them on the head, but he showed them a whole new way to be human, such that one very famous moment where Jesus invites himself into the home of an unclean, disgusting, greedy tax collector. 
He says, I'm coming to your house today. That man knew he was loved, knew he was significant, and all the reasons why he'd gone down the route of tax collecting, we don't know why, all those reasons just went in one encounter with Jesus, and he became realigned. He didn't say, oh, Jesus, I love you, I believe in you. It says he basically gave back all that he'd taken from the poor and moreover, completely righted his wrongs economically. Economically, he dealt, he got rid of his wealth and put it back where it should have belonged. He fulfilled and went beyond the requirements of the Torah. Just total heart transformation and one encounter with Jesus. That's what we need. And then the invitation for all of us who follow Jesus. We have an invitation to create a mini Eden where everyone flourishes under our temporal care. So these are little examples in hope. We're partnering with other churches and charities and the council to eradicate involuntary homelessness in this city. We want everyone to have a house and in the words of George Cadbury, maybe have a rose where they can grow, a space where they can grow plants as well. To everyone to thrive in the words of the Hebrew prophets under their own vine and fig tree, to have their own Eden. At Hope, we want everyone flourishing in their gifts, particularly those this week we're focusing on the creatives, to reveal this new way to be human, where everyone's loved, everyone's significant, and life works. We want every business owner, every Christian in the workplace, to have the imagination and the resources to create mini Edens in the workplace. And I'm going to finish with an example. By What I love about Hope is there are so many examples that immediately come to mind. But we've chosen one person who, who calls Hope their home, um, Andy Robinson, married to Sally, two lovely boys. And he was the uh, leader of the pot noodle factory, pot noodles. And now he's moved to Gray's. And so I just asked if you got any stories about what it's like bringing your your kind of vision in into the workplace, your your Christian faith. And so he sent uh, some examples, and I'm actually going to read one out of that that former role in the pot noodle factory. In the pot noodle factory, there was a plan to close the site, coming from the head office, a plan I didn't believe in because it had been built on questionable assumptions and was not in the best interests of people. I prayed about it a lot and felt that I was guided in creating a counter plan, which I managed to put in front of the right people at the right time. That I was given a chance to implement. It still involved a lot of redundancies, but far less than before. And we were able to treat people that did leave in the right way. The level of change that people went through was huge. A lot didn't thank me for it, but those that knew the alternative realized that it was in the right thing. It was the right thing, not only for the site, but also the local community. This has ultimately given a lot of people a future in that employment. I remember though people were voting on a pay deal towards the end of the process, which had it not been accepted, would have undergone a lot of work that had gone into that change agenda. I remember praying on the final vote day to say, Lord, if what I have been trying to do is your work, then let this be accepted. The vote went through by about five votes. That's someone who has people under his care in the workplace and he 
is, is prayerful and considered about making sure everyone's treated well and everyone is looked after and that, that the workplace is a place of trust and of community and of dialogue. I'm going to end on one, one image. Back in the day when I was at university, 20 years ago, I went to, I was able to access um, a college ball where essentially if you get a job, you don't have to pay for the ticket and the tickets were really expensive. So um, me and a friend, we found a job and our job was to hand out champagne. So if we did our job, then we could get part B in the party without having to pay a ticket entry price. That was like we worked for the ticket entry price. Like, brilliant, that's great. Give some champagne, easy job. Anyway, so at the beginning, we had our trays and we'd give everyone a glass of champagne. By the end of it, the amount of champagne was so much that we were essentially just giving bottles, just giving bottles to people, champagne. And I remember thinking at that point, that was the tipping point in the French Revolution when they wanted bread and the wealthy said, let them eat cake, but so the urban legend goes. There are people here who can't access clean water, and I'm just giving people bottles of champagne. And something, it was very small, but I just, something about me was like, something about all of us, I think, is I want to give my life so that everyone has access to drinking water. And then more than that, I've come to realise God's vision is everyone has access to abundance, whatever that looks like, but champagne, if that's your drink of choice. That's the kingdom. That's what we're working for here at Hope. Thanks, Alice. That was good, wasn't it? Big sweep of history, really weighty and... um, and I think it, it boils down to that starting point, that seed, doesn't it, that Alice highlighted of, of, uh, the condition of our own hearts. So I think it'd be quite good as a, as an immediate response. And Holy Spirit, we do ask that you continue to, you know, feed us on this stuff in the days and weeks to come. But we want to start off by recognizing our own brokenness and our own, uh, need for Jesus. And, um, so that we can all simply pray this prayer, whether we've prayed it a thousand times or this is our first time, uh, we can all say, and let's just do that now. Maybe just close your eyes uh, if you're there and um, in the same in the same place, and say, Jesus, we recognise uh, the brokenness within us. We've heard some of Alice's examples of of uh, what it looks like for her, and and for us it might be different, but it's just the same stuff. We recognise that we're broken, and we recognise too that you've created us good, and you've got good designs and purposes for us, and. And the way, Lord, that we enter into those is through following Jesus. And uh, Jesus said that um, the only way really to follow him is, is like a seed which is put in the ground and effectively dies, but then it grows as, as, a, as, a, new, as a new plant. So we give you our seeds, we give you our hearts, and uh, we bury them in the ground uh, and give them to you at the foot of the cross. And... Uh, we say, Jesus, we want to do things your way. We look to your wisdom, to your life, to your resurrection. And we put our life in your hands. We pray that you grow plants that flourish out of these seeds. Amen.
Okay, we're gonna we're gonna finish there, and uh, we'll have a, um, in a in a couple of minutes we'll start uh, the Zoom. So I'll put the link in for that as well in a minute. If you want to join us to uh, have a chat, have a pray, uh, then, then then please join us for that Zoom. That'd be great. And as always, you know we're trying to uh, make resources available for um, people to worship in their own homes. You know, conscious that we're people, young children, for example, this probably this doesn't this isn't designed for young children. This 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 whole time. So we've got resources there to help uh, you as parents connect with your children. They're on our YouTube and Facebook and Instagram pages. And, and, and always let us know how that's going. We'd love to be able to process and, and, and chew that journey of family church, uh, parents connecting with their children spiritually more. Let us know how it's going, anything we can do to help you and support you and resource, provide resources for you in that. It's a significant opportunity for us during during COVID. So uh, we'll finish there. Um, Christy mentioned earlier we've got Celebrate Recovery that's here every week. As a fantastic uh, group, it's now meeting in the crypt. Uh, no, no, sorry, in the prayer centre. Moved into the prayer centre. Uh, that's that's uh, tomorrow night, and then uh, our monthly uh, men's breakfast uh, is on Tuesday. Okay, we'll finish there. And I'll put the link in the um, into the comments.